Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On The Wing Podcast. We have a quail conversation teed up for you today, featuring uh, acting as my sidekick, my trusty sidekick, as he said before I hit record. Chad Love returns to uh, On The Wing Podcast, and uh, our featured guest is Dwayne Elmore, a professor at Oklahoma State University. So we're going to talk a lot about quail, a little bit about quail hunting, and a lot about quail, quail habitat, and quail hunting in the great state of Oklahoma. Oklahoma, easy for me to say. Um, how are you doing today, Dwayne? I'm great. Thanks for uh, allowing me to join you guys. I've been looking forward to it. Well, we're thrilled to have you. I think the, honestly, the last time we probably talked was 2016 when we were on the rooster road trip together, enjoying some public lands quail hunting in Oklahoma. Um, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you um, back in a conversation because I really enjoyed that experience. You're a, you're a dead eye. So we look forward to, to hearing some hunting tips from you along the way today. Okay. Well, for, for our audience, um, as I mentioned, we got Chad Love, the editor of the Quail Forever Journal. Um, and Chad, just tell us a little bit about your background, just for listeners that maybe haven't connected with you on a previous podcast, but you're an Oklahoma native. I which makes this uh, episode particularly fitting for you to join. Yep. I, uh, uh, born and raised in Oklahoma, born in Altus. Uh, I was an Air Force brat when I was born, uh, but shortly thereafter moved to Norman and uh, grew up in the Norman area, uh, went to OU. And uh, after school, my wife is from Woodward, Oklahoma, which happens to be sort of in the kind of the epicenter of, of public land, of well, of quail hunting in Oklahoma. And uh, so after school, we moved up here and I've uh, been living up here ever since. And you really cut your teeth in Oklahoma from a quail perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I started quail hunting uh, as a youngster without a dog, uh, just uh, beating the brush and uh, got my first uh, pointer in college and uh, have been uh, hunting with dogs ever since. Yeah. Um, Dwayne, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and um, how you got to be um, a professor at Oklahoma State University. Walk us through your background. Sure. So I grew up in Middle Tennessee, uh, close to Nashville, and um, grew up hunting and fishing, spent a lot of time outdoors. Very little opportunities uh, when I was growing up for quail in that part of the world. I was born a few decades too late. Um, most of the forest had closed over. Uh, most of the fields had enlarged. Uh, there just wasn't any grassland, any shrubland left. So quail were pretty rare. Um, and, uh, but I do remember the first time I got a chance to go quail hunting and I was in high school and I was already a hunter, but I went hunting for quail with the only quail hunter I knew in the entire area. And, uh, it was a forced March all day. We saw one covey of quail, but that one covey stuck, you know, it made an impression, mm. impression on me. And I, I went on to uh, go to school, the University of Tennessee at Martin for Wildlife, and then eventually Mississippi State University 
for my master's and then my PhD at Utah State University. So I moved around a little bit and ended up seeing the job post at Oklahoma State University and I thought it was a great fit because I grew up in the East, but I fell in love with the West. Oklahoma sits right in the center. Uh, and it's not just geographically in the center, it's at the crossroads of climates, uh, which has important implications to why we still have quail. But uh, for me, it's a great place to live because you can drive a couple of hours east and be in mount, uh, forested mountains similar to what I grew up in and drive a couple of hours west out where Chad is. And you're in a kind of a semi-arid landscape that looks and feels more like you're in the western part of the c country. So um, that's how I ended up here. And I really enjoy what I do. And I, I'm fortunate to get to uh, do a lot of research and education focused on quail and grouse and lots of other game birds. How old were you when you went to that first um, Middle Tennessee quail hunt? Yeah, I was probably 14, 15 at that time. And, you know, like I said, I was born a few decades too late for quail there. Uh, Tennessee has a, a, a long past history of great quail hunting. I mean, the Ames Plantation is in West mm -hmm. Tennessee. Um, so it's not like there hasn't been great bobwhite hunting there in the past, but there'd been, you know, massive landscape changes. And, um, you know, the era I grew up in, it was all about deer and turkey, uh, which is, you know, where I learned to hunt. But um, quail quickly took over. You know, when I went to Utah, um, I, I had my first bird dog. And, mm. uh, you know, Utah's got a lot of upland bird hunting opportunities. And that really hooked me. And so um, I, I brought that with me when I came here. Um, you mentioned that that one covey when mm -hmm. you were 14 years old, that was enough to leave a mark. What do you remember? about that particular covey? You know, there's there's really three things I remember about that day. One is how much country we had to cover to find quail, which is an mm. impor important point uh, because of the lack of habitat that existed in that part of the world. Second thing I remember about that day is what it looked like where that covey came up. I probably remember the place more than I remember the birds. The place was distinct from everything else in the county. Uh, it was very brushy, you know, lots of shrubs, lots of briars, thick, nasty, you know, things that you normally wouldn't want to walk through. Well, that's where the quail were. And, mm -hmm. uh, and then the third thing was the actual flush in front of a pointing dog and just how quick it was and how slow, <laughs> how slow I was. You know? <laughs> did you get a shot off? I did. And I didn't, I, I was no, no threat. <laughs> <laughs> was uh, anybody um, that was part of your hunting party successful yeah so the guy I was with he shot one quail and mm. uh and i remember how excited he was uh you mm -hmm. know to shoot a quail in that part of the world was a big deal even then and it it is now too um so he was really excited and uh and proud of his dog obviously and you know i had mm -hmm. had hunting dogs so i understood the the dog connection already, but uh, it was neat to see how excited he was and proud of his dog. And, you know, and he, and that made his day. That was enough to keep him going. Well, it sounds like it, it made your day and, and left a mark on your career. Um, from 14 to the University of Tennessee, what did you study as your undergraduate? 
wildlife biology. Uh, okay. So, you know, it was broad, all, all, lots of uh, species and mostly habitat management. I mean, I, that's what I consider myself even today. Most of my background is in habitat management. In other words, how can a landowner or land manager manipulate the vegetation in such a way to produce deer, turkey, prairie chickens, whatever it may be. And, and then Tennessee, then you went to Mississippi State uh -huh. to get your um, master's. Yeah. Uh, again, wildlife biology at Mississippi yeah. State. Exactly. And, um, you know, I, I studied morning dove, um, but, you know, I had uh, Wes Berger on my committee, who is, you know, a, a very famous uh, upland game researcher. And so I got a little chance to you know, pick his brain and, and learn more mm. about upland game birds. Of course, had upland game ecology uh, at Mississippi State. And uh, and that's where I met my wife. Um, and she's from South Georgia, which still has tremendous quail hunting. You know, that, that culture is strong and there's lots of habitat there. So, you know, as time went on, I was able to kind of learn more about the culture of quail hunting and interact with more people that kind of came from those parts of the country where it was still very strong. And then take me how you ended up out west in Utah. Yeah, so after I finished at Mississippi State, I, I thought, where could I go to school that would be as different as anywhere I can think of that I've grown up? And Utah, <laughs> Utah was it. And, uh, and I had an opportunity uh, to, to take a project out there with a, a, a great mentor. And, uh, and so I jumped on it. And... Um, and, you know, I, I, I enjoyed my time out there and, and learned a lot about working in arid systems, which has come in mm. handy in Oklahoma. I mean, Utah's, you know, one of the driest parts of the country, but um, it's 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 always a challenge, you know, when you when you're rainfall limited. And that's and that has big implications to why we still have quail in Oklahoma and we don't have very many quail east of here. You know, a lot of that's. Uh, everybody thinks Oklahoma does a great job managing quail, but the reality is we benefit from being in the part of the country where plant succession stalls where quail habitat mm -hmm. exists. So especially out in western Oklahoma, uh, the rainfall is limited enough that the plant community, with no intervention on our part, it stalls in a shrub community, which is exactly what quail need. You can have quail east of there, but you've got to want them. It's not a byproduct of the climate. You have to manage actively for them. And unfortunately, there's just not much of that happening. Okay, so you, you've, you said quail, I'm sorry, the, the habitat stalls in Oklahoma, and that's a direct result of lack of moisture, uh -huh. I would assume, right? That's and, right. And the soil conditions play into that too, don't they? They do, yeah. Sandy soils uh, typically are inherently more forb rich, and forbs are those flowering plants that we know are so important for quail, where you know where insect abundance is high. So in sandy soils, you typically have a, a really forb rich or wildflower rich plant community, whereas in tighter soils like clay soils, uh, it often takes a little more disturbance, things like disking. Mm. Uh, you know, so in the east. Uh, the wetter parts of the country when there was a lot of, uh, you know, 
patchy farming, a lot of turning over the soil, that stimulates a lot of those plants that quail desired. And there's also lots of burning in the forest that, you know, keeps the canopy open and you get shrub community developing. So all of those things that used to happen in the east created conditions that were very good for quail. But when the fire stopped and uh, field size got larger and herbicides became more prevalent so that those flowering plants were, were eliminated, your quail habitat just ceased to be. But it's really easy to grow quail in the east because of the rain if you have the right type of management. But where like Chad lives and where I spend most of my time hunting, um, you know, a wet year might be 40 inches of rain. Well, that's a catastrophic drought in South Georgia. I mean, mm. so even in the worst drought years, there's abundant rainfall from a quail standpoint. Yeah, it's interesting because we had a conversation about quail and quail biology with Dr. Bill Palmer, mm. um, right out of, out of Tall Timbers. And, you know, you, you think about what quail need in, you know, the first, second and third practices out of his mouth are fire management. Yeah. Right, prescribed fire is critical, but is is prescribed fire even a tool in the Oklahoma quail manager's toolbox, or is it, you know, with the soil and lack of moisture, it's a much more specialized tool that you use um, when it comes to fire? We still use it a lot. Um, so when you're east of I thirty five which is going to be a precip zone of about 32, 35 inches or greater, um, that part of the world wants to be a forest. So if you don't mm. do management, it will become a forest. And most of it has. If it's not developed for housing, it's a forest in eastern Oklahoma. So in that part of the world, you've got to have a lot of disturbance, similar to what you would have in Tennessee or Kentucky or Virginia or South Carolina. Lots of forest management, lots of fire to keep it in quail habitat. Now, as you move west and you get below, say, 30, 32 inches of rain, um, it still moves towards something that is not suitable for quail but it just happens a lot slower so you can mm. go you can go a long time without fire but you know in, around woodward we're still losing habitat because of eastern red cedar that plant can exist in a 28 25 inch precip zone and it's slowly expanding and taking over areas that used to support quail so yeah fire is still important in western oklahoma but you don't necessarily have to have it as frequent. Whereas like where my wife grew up in South Georgia, if you're not burning every two years, you're out mm -hmm. of the quail business quick. I mean, it is mm -hmm. a lot of fire. Whereas in Woodward, you might be able to burn once or twice a decade and you're good. Mm. Wow. So yeah, as you mentioned earlier, you know, Oklahoma is not only the kind of the center of the country, it's a climate intersection uh, and that's what you're talking about going from kind of a part of the state where there's more moisture and there's fire to much more arid and that yeah. that happens right through oklahoma and two completely different ways to manage quail as a result yeah and you know i mean think about a state that has alligator and bighorn sheep i mean it huh. is true 
our our climate is tremendously diverse. We we sit at this intersection of Gulf moisture driven climate and Rocky Mountain. You know those those cold, dry Pacific front are, that are coming over the Rockies, and where those two things clash, uh, I mean that's why we, we're Tornado Alley. You know we have that big clash of climate, um, but it also makes a very dichotomous landscape from a vegetation and wildlife standpoint. So. We can have great quail hunting in eastern Oklahoma, just like you can in Tennessee. You just have mm. to, you just have to want to do it. You know, it's it's not typically just a byproduct of the climate you get. It takes active management. Whereas in western Oklahoma, it's a lot easier to be a quail manager. You just have to wait for the rain because it mm. can't be it can be too dry and too hot in western Oklahoma. And that's you know, you were here in 2016, so we were coming off. A boom, you know, 2014, 14, 15, 16, tremendous quail years, you know, 20, 30 coveys a day on public land. And, you know, we go from that to a couple years later, you'd be happy if you saw five coveys a day. I mean, really, really boom and bust. And that's climate driven. So our biggest driver of quail in western Oklahoma is climate. In eastern Oklahoma, the biggest driver is plant succession the plant community has moved too far towards the wet side hmm. it, it's fascinating to think about alligators and bighorn sheep both in in oklahoma because uh-huh. you know as a person that's only been through oklahoma a couple of times i don't think of either of those species <laughs> when right. i think of oklahoma but i do think of quail when i think of oklahoma yeah. You need to spend more time down here, Bob. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great state. It really is. It's, it's amazing. Well, I want to get back to, to – I want to circle back to more about Oklahoma, but round out how you went from Utah, where you got your Ph.D., to being a professor at Oklahoma State. What, what was the progression there? Yeah, so my major advisor at um, – Utah State was a wildlife extension specialist, which is what I do for Oklahoma State. So I, I working with him, I got to find out how great his job was. And so when I saw this job advertised, you know, I thought not only is it in a great part of the country where I can hop to the east and the west, kind of have one foot on both sides of the continent, but it's also the type of job that I think I would enjoy. And I get to do research, uh, and I also do a lot of education, um, and primarily my the education I do is to landowners or agencies, people that are trying to manage for wildlife species. Uh, okay, so t- talk to us a little bit about what your daily job is. You know, because you, you, I know you in a very narrow window as what a you know it, it's not a stretch to say you're one of the top five foremost quail biologists in the country. And I know you as a quail biologist. What do you do on your day-to-day job, um, specifically for quail and beyond? Mm-hmm. So from a research standpoint, primarily what I do is uh, work with agencies or um, that have and help them identify research needs, like things that we need to know to better manage quail in this case. And then uh, we develop projects to answer those questions, hire graduate students. I supervise those graduate students, help them collect the data, collect the data, analyze the data, and report it in a way that's meaningful 
to those managers. So it's kind of a, a loop. Identify a problem, collect the data to answer that question, and report it back to the uh, stakeholders and the people that can actually use the information. So that's the research side, but it's also the education is woven in there too, because from that research, we take that knowledge and, and bring it back to the stakeholder. And we do that through things like field days, where we have people out on sites to look at habitat management and discuss it, mm-hmm. see it with their own eyes. We write summary doc- documents uh, to summarize what the research means and how it can be applied. Uh, we do things like this, you know, podcasts, just talk to people and, and let them know that, hey, if you want to manage quail, we can help you. It's doable. It's, you know, it's not some mysterious thing. We've We've studied this animal for over 100 years. So uh, it comes in a lot of different forms, how we do the education. Um, And, you know, and I get a lot of just phone calls. And that might be a landowner in Muskogee County that has 200 acres. Or it might be the U.S. Forest Service that's trying to manage 200,000 acres. Hmm. So it's enjoyable because every day is a little different. Yeah. And and you mentioned your wife, Leslie, Mm -hmm. uh, who you said you met at Mississippi State, correct? Yes. So, did you guys get married while you were at Mississippi State? No, we, we actually uh, were married at Utah while I was going to okay. school at Utah State, yeah. So in, in the, um, to bring all listeners up to speed, Leslie, about probably two years ago now, became a, a coordinating biologist with Quail Forever. So she, yeah. yeah. So you, she, got, you, you talk quail Every morning, day, and night <laughs> at your household. Uh, probably too much, but uh, <laughs> yeah, you know it's it's hard not to talk about things like that when you've got two biologists in the household. She she has her master's degree from Mississippi State University, and, and of course we have uh, a bird dog, and so uh, a lot of our life does revolve around upland game birds. <laughs> So when you guys have an argument, is it over quail? No. <laughs> no. No. So, so when it comes to quail, you yeah, marital bliss. Yeah, marital bliss. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I mentioned that she comes from a part of the world that still has this strong culture of quail. You know, you mentioned tall timbers. Um, mm-hmm. You know, she grew up very close to there and worked on uh, the Jones Center, the Itchaway Research Center, which is another very famous quail management area. And that, I think it's helpful um, to for listeners to maybe, especially people that might be from where I grew up, places like Tennessee, Kentucky, where it just seems hopeless that, you know, there's no, there's no quail habitat left. I think it's helpful to realize there are places scattered around the country, like where Leslie grew up in South Georgia or North Florida or Oklahoma or Texas or Kansas. There's even isolated spots in Tennessee, believe it or not, that still produce a bird per acre every year. And they've been doing that for a long time. I mean, some of these places can produce two birds per acre. And for the listener, that would translate to 10 to 20 covey days on hunting by foot. So, it's doable. Um, and, and, you know, and it's really, it's really helpful, I think, to take a road trip sometimes. So for somebody that's in South Carolina that hasn't seen a wild bobwhite in 20 years, you know, I would say go to South Georgia and see what it looks like or go to Western Oklahoma and see what it looks like. It will be obvious to you immediately why there are no quail 
in your part of the world because you're not going to, you know, you're not going to see habitat. But if you've grown up in that, like I did in Tennessee, where I didn't have the opportunity to see habitat, you don't realize what you're missing because it's, you know, it's your search image. It's all you've ever known. So that's, um, that's what I try to tell people when I'm talking about quail is I've, I've been blessed and fortunate to have worked and traveled over the entire distribution of Bob White. And the unifying concept that I see, no matter where I go, anywhere there's abundant bobwhite, there's abundant habitat. Mm-hmm. The end. I mean, they they occur in a huge part of the country that's very different culturally and climatically and you, soils, you name it. But no matter where you go, if there are lots of bobwhite, you're going to have a lot of shrubs. It's going to be a shrub-dominated community. And... Mm-hmm. We have to fall back to that when we're trying to think about how to recover Bob White and to keep hunters in the game. So Dwayne, you said that uh, in those areas, in those pockets in the Southeast that, that still have uh, wild quail and, and a quail hunting tradition, is there something that drives or instigates the the fact that those areas still have quail? Is it, is it, is it like an industry driven, like a timber industry kind of thing? Or, or what uh, what's the factor, the, the main factor involved with that? Yeah. So there are some places that I would say accidentally have them because of some other land use. Like uh, there's some southeastern Oklahoma, as an example, there's a lot of warehouser land. And because of the active forest management that's going on, there's decent quail on, in, some of that, in some of that country. But most of the areas where you find those quail, it's just sheer will of the landowner. They want quail, whether it's those very large plantations in South Georgia or if it's in the case of like a Tennessee, it's a wildlife management area where the, the manager is just determined that quail will not disappear from eastern Tennessee. Um, so it's usually not an accident. It's typically a lot of effort. So you mentioned the, the kind of the universal component to create quail is shrub habitat. Mm-hmm. And I think about the Southeast piney woods and the need to burn every two years and shrubs aren't necessarily what pops into my mind. Um, so explain that to me a little bit more about um, shrub, the, the importance of shrubs as you move East. Cause sure. I a hundred percent see it as you move West, like Oklahoma. That, I mean, that's, that's the quote unquote cubby headquarters, right. In the, mm-hmm. in the shrub patches. But as you move East, it feels like they need more open ground than they need shrub habitat. So um, the, as an example, uh, you mentioned tall timber. So I had a chance to uh, hunt a couple years ago with, with those guys and the property we were on was, was just outstanding. I think, you know, in a, um, a two hour period, we moved seven cubbies and we were, spending most of our time talking and not hunting very hard <laughs> that is a very high quail density i mean we're talking mm-hmm. you know much over one bird per acre and while there were open patches um, a lot of the ground cover had uh woody like blackberry brambles mm. um, s- s- running oak um, it's it's low like maybe knee high or thigh high but it, it's woody. And think about what, it, what does a shrub mean? Well, from a quail standpoint, a shrub is some uh, woody plant structure that's going to keep uh, not only a predator from 
uh, hitting them, but also keep the sun off them, uh, you know, keep the weather off them. So it's, it's protection, it's cover. So not all shrubs look the same. I mean, you know, it's not all going to be big sand plum thickets like you saw in Western Oklahoma. It can be just kind of this scattered brambly uh, or, or short growing oak, re-sprouting oak that's in the understory, but it's still that protective cover that offers them security. So it's thick at knee and thigh high but open at ground level. So when you're walking through good quail cover, you should be able to shuffle your feet freely and not have a lot of obstructions. Mm-hmm. But at your thighs, you should be getting ripped by briars. Mm-hmm. Okay? Because that that is protecting the quail. I mean, that's kind of what they're looking for. And not the whole landscape has to be like that, but there needs to be scattered patches of it. Because anywhere you find quail, there will be some part of the landscape that looks like that but there might also be as you say more open areas as well yeah that makes a lot of sense and and that's what the where the burning comes in because in the east it can just those brambles can take over everything so it's not a not a function of like the the shrub quote-unquote shrubs grow naturally very quickly in the east so it's Uh kind of creating the open shrub combo that's needed where you have the moisture in the soils that facilitate it. Yeah. If you don't burn all, um, you know, eventually those shrubs will become tall and thick and they might start to shade out the food producing plants, the forbs, those right. flowering plants. And, um, and also some of those quote shrubs become trees, you know, uh, and, and again, the shading becomes a factor to the point that there's no, uh, no understory for the quail it, and, and, and that's not, um, that's not quail habitat. Yeah, that's helpful. You talked about, um, you have these graduate students that are doing research focused on quail. Tell us, um, you know, maybe some of the, the most fascinating studies uh, from the past, and then let's, we'll get to what, what the students are working on today. But okay. let's uh, tell us about some of the the ones that really stick out in your mind. Yeah, some of the some of the things that over the past fourteen years that I've been at OSU, some of the things that have really stood out to me is um, I'll start in the east and move west. So we did a project a few years ago with our wildlife department uh, looking at quail habitat or lack thereof in the eastern part of the state, trying to understand um, what we could do better uh, for quail and and what uh, what made for good quail habitat. And the thing that we learned is that the biggest predictor of whether or not there was going to be quail on a property was canopy cover of trees. So if, if you had um, over about 50 or 60% canopy cover, you're out of quail. Hmm. There's too much shade, no shrubs in the understory, no flowering plants in the understory. Uh, it just becomes a closed forest. So that was a big, big, uh, and, and we knew that. I mean, we could drive through these landscapes and see it, but to be able to quantify it and say, yeah, it's at about 50%. So if you're trying to manage for a quail in a, in a landscape that wants to grow a forest, you've got to have at least half the canopy, the overstory, open so that sunlight is reaching the ground. And that sunlight will stimulate the plant community that the quail need. The other thing we learned from that study is that you need more than 40 acres of it. Uh, in fact, uh, from that r- research, it appears that 
about 700 ish acres is kind of a threshold before you can expect to have a quail not good quail hunting a quail one the site is occupied by quail so that means you know a lot of our public land quail areas are just too small you know Mm -hmm. if, if we've got a 10,000 acre WMA, let's say, oh, I don't know, Arkansas. All right, I'll pick on Arkansas a little bit. So if we've got a 10,000 acre WMA and we're managing 300 acres of it for quail, not good enough. That's probably not enough to persist, to have a population to persist. Now that doesn't mean all 10,000 acres have to be managed for quail, but it, it, it dang sure better be more than a thousand if you have any hope of a population to be able to persist. So from that study, we learned a little bit about the scale of the canopy and the scale of the amount of habitat that needs to be present. If we move west, out in western Oklahoma, uh, another study that we did was really focused on trying to understand temperature. We knew that in these hot, dry years, quail busted in western Oklahoma and Texas and west Kansas. Uh, and you know, and drought, the lack of rainfall is a big part of that. But what we have learned as we've studied more about where quail are under different uh, temperature and weather conditions is we found out that temperature is a big driver. Now, temperature and drought are often correlated. So when you get droughty conditions, it's also hot. But you can have a lot of moisture and it still be too hot and quail stop nesting. And we've seen that repeatedly. When we start getting these strings of 100 degree days, the, the adult quail just go into survival mode. They're not worried about laying eggs and trying to reproduce. So to have these boom years, it's not just about rain, but it's also about moderate temperatures for a long period of time. Hmm. And and we see that play out in, in how quail pick and choose what to use on the landscape. They they are very specific when it's very hot. They're very specific about the shrubs they use. Uh, and, and then alternatively, when it's very cold, we find that in extreme cold weather, they strongly gravitate towards sand plum in western Oklahoma. And in very hot weather, they strongly gravitate towards uh, sumac when it's very hot. And when we look at the temperature in sumac, it's several degrees cooler than anything else on the landscape. Hmm. So the, the quail are very responsive to temperature and they're making decisions on an hourly basis based on, you know, temperature and environmental conditions. And that's helped us really understand more why we have these boom and bust cycles and also what we can do to mitigate, because we now know that not all shrubs are equal. And if you really want to hedge your bets for quail, you better have a diverse shrub community. Not just sand plum, but you also need sumac and sand sagebrush and just some diversity. Hmm. So th- those are some big, big uh, projects that we've done in recent years. It, pretty fascinating. You talk about the string of temperature days that are super hot and they go into survival mode. How many days is the threshold before they just give up on nesting and go into that survival mode? I, I don't know. I can't say like how many days it would be, but I, we did see that just one or two days in a row doesn't make a big difference. Um, okay. And it doesn't and it doesn't make as much difference to a bird that's actively nesting. So once they've incubated or once they've started incubation, they're much more likely to try to see it through. Uh, 
What hmm. we really, really saw was that uh, multiple days that were extremely hot, say like a week. When, when I start seeing a week or 10 days of 100 degree weather, I'm worried. I, I know that that's going to shut the quail off. Hmm. And what I mean by shut them off is they the birds won't start initiating new nests. So I think a lot of people have the mistaken notion that quail all nest in, the, in April and May, and then they just raise their chicks all year. Well, that's not the case at all. Um, they start nesting in April, and they don't stop until October. Now, there's pulses of stronger production in there that's tied to weather. Some years, most of our production might be in June. Other years, it might be in August. The very hmm. best years, the years you want to drive to Oklahoma and hunt, or when it never stopped, when they started in May and they kept nesting all summer. And mm. that, doesn't, that doesn't happen very often. Maybe only once a decade does that actually happen. So for just for folks um, that are maybe coming at this from a pheasant biology mindset, um, clarify the difference between pheasant nesting and how quail dif are different in reproduction perspective. Yeah. So pheasant are um, strongly polygamous, which means that one male will mate with lots of females. So, you know, you don't uh, you don't have really any male investment in nesting. Um, and then pheasants typically uh, have a much more uh, discreet nesting season where most of the hens that are uh, av available and in a, in a good enough body condition to nest, they will try to nest late spring, early summer. So in our part of the world, that usually is happening, um, you know, late May, early June, somewhere in there. Now, if they fail quickly, in other words, if a raccoon eats the eggs and it's early in the incubation, that hen may try to nest again. Yep. If it's late, if she's already invested a couple of weeks, she's probably done for the year. She's not likely to come back in July and try it again or August. Whereas a bobwhite, if if the bobwhite nests in April and she loses her clutch, and let's say she actually hatched, so let's say she hatched, but the chicks were eaten immediately, well, that bobwhite might nest again in July if she's in good body condition. And if she loses that nest, she might nest again in September. So she's going to try multiple times, assuming the environment is right. It's not too hot. It's not too dry. And assuming her body condition is good, which means she's got plenty of insects to eat. Yeah. So a couple of distinctions there, just to, to add clarity, pheasants, um, if their if they're, uh, clutch hatches at all, and they lose a clutch of a brood, uh, they will not lay down a single extra egg. If they've gone through, lay down a nest, and then they hatch, it's over from a pheasant's perspective. For quail, they have a different reproductive sort of philosophy, yeah. for lack of a better term, right? Um, yeah. it, it, I always liken it to the Mr. You remember the movie Mr. Mom? <laughs> so I always, I always think of Bob White to having the Mr. Mom advantage, right? Because yeah. they, they hatch a clutch and the male takes over sort of parenting duties, right? 
And yeah. the, the female can have a second, and there's even documented cases of three different clutches of bobwhite quail um, nesting success in one particular nesting season. Is that, is yeah. that accurate? Yeah, so it's it's a, even more complicated than that, uh, potentially, because so if a female hatches a nest and she sees those chicks through to adulthood, it's not likely that she's going to nest anymore that year. She's probably committed herself, but to give her the opportunity to nest more times, quail have lots of different strategies of handing off their chicks. So sometimes they'll do what's called crash. So several hens will essentially uh, donate or adopt out their chicks. Hmm. So you might see a hen that's got 26 chicks. Well, those aren't all hers. She did not lay 26 eggs. Hmm. I guarantee you that. And if you look at them closely, you might say, well, that one's the size of a bumblebee. That one's uh two and a half inches tall. That one's four inches tall. Those are three different ages of chicks. Yeah. Cause they're from three different clutches. So that's one thing that happens. They adopt them together in big crush groups and that frees up those hens to go nest again. The other thing that happens is if she's got a male that's very attentive, attentive and stays around and the conditions are good, the environment's good. She might not even incubate that nest she'll leave abandon it and the male will incubate it for her and in the good years we typically see about 25 percent of all the nests are male incubated nests wow. and the hen leaves she, and she just goes off to nest again if she's got the body condition for it so all those strategies enable quail to boom they mm. can produce a lot of young when the conditions are appropriate yeah. so it, it, Temperature and obviously, well, I'm I'm assuming obviously, the number one factor for nesting success is quality habitat, and number two, what we've just learned is temperature. What's the ideal? Can I'm assuming a consistent temperature is ideal for nesting success, and what is that kind of sweet spot for quail success uh, throughout the spring and summer months? So they have a lot of tolerance. I mean, um, you know, g getting summertime temperatures down into the 60s is, is not going to be a problem because the hen, uh, she will keep the eggs incubated at the proper temperature. And even the high temperatures she can handle by keeping them cool. So she's not only keeping the eggs warm, she's keeping the eggs cool when it's under hot conditions. The problem becomes hmm. if, she, if she becomes stressed, so at some point, you know, let's say it's 110 degrees, all right, and she's trying to stay cool. She's sitting on that nest, keeping the eggs at the proper temperature, keeping them from reaching 110, which would be a lethal temperature to the embryos. So she's trying to keep them cool, but she's doing that by uh, what we call guler flutter. She's basically dissipating heat off her body and trying to stay cool, but she also needs um, energy that burns a lot of calories when you're mm. guler fluttering all day you're burning calories and at some say, point she has to get off the nest and eat say say that for me the the flutter guler, guler flutter g-u-l-a-r if you ever see uh like chickens in a hot um 
chicken coop, you'll see it looks like they're panning. They've got their mouth, it's open, and you'll see their tongue rapidly moving. Their throat is kind of gyrating. That's a way to rapidly, they're moving air through their esophagus where all these blood uh, blood vessels are pumping hot, hot, uh, superheated blood close to the uh, surface and that air is taking the heat out of their body. So it's a way for them to dissipate heat and stay wow. cool. But it burns a lot of calories. So if you're going to stay cool, you have to eat a lot of energy. So if at some point the, 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 the adult has to make a decision, if I stay on this nest any longer, I'm dead. So I've got to get off the nest, cool off, eat food, come back. Well, when she does that, the eggs can become too hot and potentially mm-hmm. die. But also, she's not incubating them. So the more she has to stay off the nest, the lower development uh, rate you might see in the eggs and the higher chance of predation. So that getting on and off the nest is a risky endeavor for a nest. And so we don't want that to happen. We want the, the hen to be able, or the male, if it's a male incubated nest, we want them to be able to stay on that nest as much as possible um, but they have a lot of tolerance. They can tolerate some extreme conditions. You know, one day of 105, they can handle it. But you get a string of those days, it starts to add up. Hmm. They're running low on energy. They're stressed. They're overheated. The embryos have a higher chance of dying or being predated. So hey, what? Go ahead, Chad. Well, I was going to ask. I was going to ask about rainfall, uh, especially in in this part of the state, in the semi-arid part of the state, is you know, I, I've always heard that that back east you can have too much rainfall in, in the spring, and that can have a detrimental effect on on nesting success. Out here, what what role does rainfall play in in the the success or failure of, of nesting? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, for lots of game birds, there's been documented situations of rainfall causing nest loss. I mean, it, and it can be the the obvious ones like a big flood or you know, the nest is underwater and the eggs get washed out of the nest and broken or whatever. That can happen. Uh, hail storms is another thing. Sometimes hail not only can break the eggs, but kill the adult. We found prairie chickens that are bludgeoned from, from hail before they were sitting on a nest. Um, but the more indirect is what's the effect of the hen being wet and, um, you know, having to stay warm uh, burning more calories, trying to stay warm and, and preen, you know, they have to preen their feathers with the oil glands to try to keep them dry and, and, and not get too waterlogged. So that has an energetic effect on the hen as well. So these prolonged wet periods can cause hens to abandon the nest or to leave the nest too frequently to try to preen and dry and eat more food. So it can have the similar effect that I mentioned to the heat. Um, one thing that's kind of an unknown is how does that moisture affect uh, the the probability that a mammalian predator, that some a predator that relies on scent, how does that affect their ability to find the egg? Hmm. And that's something we don't have a really clear understanding of. We've we've done some studies on olfaction, scent based pr- predation, and it's it's really not clear. You talked about uh, the importance of sumac uh, for for really warm days. It's a place where quail can kind of get cool, and plum thickets um, for for 
cold days to kind of ride out some inclement mm-hmm. bad winter weather. I'm, I'm wondering, um, uh, well, two-part question related to sumac. How, why is it cooler under sumac? Is there an ecological reason? And then yeah. because of that, my I hypothesize that quail probably try to nest under sumac at a greater rate, knowing that it's going to be a good place to kind of have cooler weather through the summer. Is that even an accurate hypothesis? Uh, well, t- for your second question, no, we actually don't see quail select sumac for nesting. Um, hmm. They, w- we do see the adults select for it when it's extremely hot, but the nesting, uh, for at least for Bob White, um, the nesting seems to be uh, a little bit random. They they do nest in. They typically select spots that have cover, but sometimes it's grass cover, sometimes it's shrub cover. Uh, it, it's really variable, and uh, and as far as um, you know, why that is, there's probably there's probably a lot of other things going on and in influencing nest uh, success besides or nest selection besides just temperature. You know, that's just one aspect. So that, that may be why we see the, the variation that we do, but we definitely see the adults being more selective on the, on the uh, vegetation when it's hot or when it's cold. And as far as why is sumac cooler, I don't know. That's, that's on my to-do list is to try to understand <laughs> that. There's several possibilities. It could be because there's different airflow. You could have better convective cooling, so more air that takes heat away. It could be that some of these plants absorb more solar radiation and then subsequently give off more heat to anything that's around them. That's a possibility. Um, it could be that these certain shrubs have more bare ground, which would mm-hmm. affect uh, solar radiation absorption and then reflectance. So there's there's several different possible mechanisms i think we've identified like 10 possible reasons that we can think of that might be influencing this and right now we we don't know what's driving it so all we can tell the manager is all shrubs are not created equal and you need to be managing for a diverse shrub community Hmm. Uh, on that note uh has have you ever looked at at the the thermal qualities? I'm, I'm thinking primarily wintertime thermal qualities of uh, of eastern red cedar. If if it does have any tiny bit of of positive uh, influence or or any kind of uh, uh, positive you know um, yeah. effect on on quail populations or or for as far as wintertime cover goes. Yeah. So not so much from a quail standpoint because a lot of the a lot of the properties that we've intensively studied quail don't have Eastern red cedar. Um, but from uh, w- w- some other work that we've done actually on box turtles, where we were looking at temperature selection in box turtles, which it turns out they're very, very sensitive to temperature in a big way. Um, we found that these cedar pockets are, are, are definitely cooler. So in the summertime, it provides a cooler environment. Uh, don't know about in the wintertime because on that box turtle project, the box turtles are underground in the winter so we weren't looking at temperature but yeah it definitely is cooler so yeah cedar is a native a native plant to oklahoma and it serves 
a purpose. I mean, there are species that use cedar and even quail will use cedar. It's just when it becomes a monoculture is when it really starts to hurt quail. So, so tell us about that a little bit more because I think folks know red cedar, Easter red cedar is bad, but mm-hmm. tell us, explain why a little bit more because I don't, I don't think everybody understands like draw the assumption, well, this is, this should be a shelter belt, but yeah. it's, it, it's like crazy and aggressive, right? Where it just takes over the yeah. diversity so, of the habitat. So in the prairies, um, if you drive by a pasture that's full of Eastern red cedar, you know immediately that that site has not had a recent history of fire. And the reason we know that is because in the Southern Great Plains, almost all the woody plants, whether it's sumac or sand plum or post oak, um, they all re-sprout if they're top killed by fire. So if you burn those plants, they come back from the root, not cedar. Uh, Cedar, if you cut it down or top kill it with fire, that plant is dead. It has to come back from a seed. So if we see a pasture that's full of eastern red cedar, we know immediately that that site has not had fire. So that it's an indicator of fire suppression because it's one of the few woody plants that is what we call fire intolerant. Hmm. All right. So what happens is if you have a long enough period without fire, cedar just fills in all the gaps. So you go from a prairie that has a diverse shrub community that has patches of sunflower, patches of sumac, patches of bare ground, has all those components that quail need. You end up with a cedar woodland that's just shoulder to shoulder to shoulder cedar. And if you've ever been in a site like that and look in the understory, there's nothing in the understory. The cedar intercepts all the sunlight and the understory is vacant. There's no food resources. So you've got the overhead cover, but there's no food. There's Mm. nothing that quail can use. And there's no cover at ground level for a nesting quail to hide. There's only that top overhead cover. So it's just not habitat at that point. But, you know, patches of scattered cedar can still work. And you mentioned shelter belts. Uh, Yeah, I mean, lots of species pile into cedar shelter belts in the winter to escape cold winds like pheasant love it Um, but again as those cedars start to encroach on the surrounding prairie at some point it's not a grassland anymore so Mm. you'll lose even pheasants once it becomes a cedar woodland yeah that's good um i remember in 2016 we Uh hunted uh, the the beaver wildlife area and my dog brought a quail to me and it had a leg band on it. Mm-hmm. Um, is that a pretty, are you still using leg bands on quail um, to as part of your research or is there a move to telemetry or does it um, depend on what you're trying to study? It, yeah, it does depend. I mean, pretty much any bird we handle gets a leg band hmm. uh, because those leg bands are fairly permanent they rarely fall off so if that bird is ever handled by anyone else we can track it and know that okay that bird we handled it at this date so we can look at things like survival and uh, also you know movement um, harvest rates etc so for some questions like survival harvest 
a leg band is good enough. But if we want to look at habitat selection, for example, where is a bird going to be when it's 110? Hmm. Or where does a bird nest? Well, you need a more active way to monitor the bird because the band requires someone to shoot the bird for us to find any information. And we don't know what happened from point A to point B. But with telemetry, which emits a radio signal, we can go out anytime we want and listen for that radio signal, locate the bird, so we can find out real time what that bird is doing and where it's at. How many birds do you have? Any idea? Um, banded and telemetry birds that are out there on the, the landscape? Depends on the year and how many projects were going. You know, back when you were hunting uh, here and we were actively working on beaver and pack saddle, you know, at any one time we might have had two or 300 quail hmm. wow. monitored. Um, but, you know, uh, like right now we're, we're, we've got a project on four wildlife management areas in Oklahoma for Bob White. And those projects are focused uh, on different questions that does not require as many birds monitored. Um, and we're using GPS transmitters. So those transmitters actually transmit the signal to a satellite. So we don't even have to be in the field. Once you put the transmitter on the bird, it's uploading data to the satellite. Um, but you get a lot of locations. And then we're just starting a project on scaled quail and uh, on the Cimarron National Grassland, which is in southwestern Kansas. And um, we just started like last week. So we've got just a handful of birds, but I'm crossing my fingers that within a month we'll have 80 uh, trapped and, and, and have transmitters on them. But it's a lot of work to catch birds. <laughs> it, it's, it's very labor intensive. Uh, it, we, we put a lot of boot leather, or I say we, I'm, I'm, my graduate students and technicians put a lot of boot leather out to, to catch these birds and put transmitters on them. And so how do they do that? I've seen, so, I've seen some videos of, you know, driving around in the dark with great big spotting lights and, and nets yeah. where people catch pheasants. Is it a similar methodology for quail or is it different? No, the primary way we catch quail is, uh, a trap that's called Stoddard quail trap. And that was invent invented by Herbert Stoddard in the twenties or thirties uh, down in South Georgia. It was a very famous quail uh, biologist and it's just a walk-in funnel trap. So it's made out of like poultry wire. It's got funnels and you put bait in the trap, uh, usually cracked corn or milo and the bird walks through the funnel and they have a hard time figuring out how to get back out because it narrows. And so then we check those traps two or three times a day and, um, and hopefully you've got quail in there. You catch other stuff too, you know, everything from cardinals to morning doves to rattlesnakes uh, sometimes get in there, but we're going for the quail. And that's how you, that's the primary way we catch them. Another thing you can do is once you have a quail with a transmitter, you can do what's called a, a Judas trap technique so you use the the quail as a trader you know give the covey location away so we've got one transmitter on a bird that's in a covey of 15 birds so we go out at night and track that bird to its covey location where they're roosted together and we'll take a net and drop the net over the entire covey and they huh. flush up and get entangled and so that's another way that you can catch quail huh all right, so you've talked, uh, you touched on that you you got some GPS 
um, tracking happening with quail right now. Tell us about some of these research products or projects, you know, what, what you're trying to learn um, through what's happening with some of these uh, efforts at the moment. Yeah. So the Bob White project that's working on the four wildlife management areas, that's really trying to understand shrub management better. So we know how important shrubs are to quail, but we're trying to help managers uh, have the best game plan on how they can maximize quail habitat. So we've, we've chosen four very different wildlife management areas to have different kinds of shrubs to look at the commonalities and so that we know structurally and compositionally like what the landscape should look like for, for quail. So that's the main focus of that project. Hmm. Uh, the scaled quail project that we're starting in Kansas is focused on uh, winter habitat requirements. So we've done, that's, uh, first of all, scaled quail are grossly understudied compared to bobwhite. Hmm. We know a lot less about scaled quail than we do bobwhite. And we know very little about winter habitat requirements of scaled quail. And so we're really trying to understand um, what the winter habitat looks like for a scaled quail so that we know how we can create more of it. And also how much do they move in winter and, um, and, and, you know, some indirect effects of hunting and, you know, how, how does that affect their movement rates and the type of habitat they might use. Um, so, so we're doing both daytime and nighttime roost locations to see what the birds are using during the non-breeding season. And we just finished a scaled quail project in New Mexico, and um, that was focused on temperature. So I mentioned how important temperature is for bobwhite. Well, we were trying to see if we saw similar patterns in scaled quail, and we do. Uh, they mm. seem to be very selective of where they nest uh, based on temperature. And, um, and there was, and we were also looking at how artificial surface water, uh, how that might affect their, their habitat selection and, and whether or not it influenced survival or not. So you've talked a great deal about climate and changing temperatures and, uh, you know, it, we've seen certain species move north as the climate has changed. Um, do you anticipate bobwhites and scaled quail moving north to find that sweet spot of more moderate temperatures and quality habitat? So we actually did a paper a few years ago where we tried to answer that question and we modeled all the quail in North America. I'll just talk about bobwhite and scaled quail today, but for basically what we did is we took the climate projections that are out there and there's multiple uh, climate models. And uh, while there's some variation between them, they all generally suggest that the Southern Great Plains is gonna get hotter and drier. The, and the variability is going to increase. The, the highs are going to be higher and the lows are going to be lower. So mm -hmm. it's not just hotter, but more variable. Um, and so we took those climate models and, and, and the current distribution of where bobwhite and scaled quail are and asked the question, okay, if where bobwhite occur now, if that climate represents what they can survive in, and if the climate models play out, if the direction they suggest we're headed, if that actually is where we end up by 
let's say 2080, you know, mm-hmm. 60 years from now, then what parts of the country might be uh, risky for Bob White? And then we created a map that basically showed areas that we anticipate Bob White uh, will will have an easier time or a harder time with the climate. And it was really eye-opening. For scaled quail, we saw that their distribution based on climate alone, not, not accounting for habitat, which that matters, obviously, right. but just based on climate, scaled quail are projected to increase their uh, spatial distribution. So in other words, expand their range to the northeast. So parts of Kansas might actually become more suitable. And we didn't see a huge retraction in the United States, although parts of Mexico look like they might be becoming too risky for scaled quail. Bob White... Um, most of the country actually was predicted to stay in the range of what Bob White can occur with some expansion into places like Michigan. And now hmm. the question would be, if you look at those places in Michigan, is there a habitat there? Well, in a lot of cases, no, no. there is no habitat, but the climate might actually be able to support them. But the really alarming thing for Bob White, there were three parts of the country where based on climate alone, the projection was, they might have a hard time making it. And those three places were Western Oklahoma, the Trans-Pecos, Western Texas, and South Florida. Hmm. You think about where do we have good quail hunting now? Those are three places I just named, West Texas, Western Oklahoma, and parts of Florida. So what that tells me as a quail manager, if I'm just take, if I'm stepping back and trying to take this in context, it doesn't tell me that I should give up on Western Oklahoma. That's not what it says. It just says that if the climate moves in the direction we think it's going to, it might be harder to produce Bob White in that part of the world. So you better not put all your eggs in one basket. You better be trying to manage for quail in Eastern Oklahoma and Arkansas and Tennessee and Virginia and South Carolina and all those other places that can support Bob White, but don't because there's not enough habitat. Hmm. So I think it's a wake up call for the whole country to say, come to Oklahoma and hunt. We, we want you to come and enjoy yourselves, but go back home and make quail habitat where you are too. Cause it's not enough just to say we have quail in Oklahoma. We need quail everywhere in between all the way to the Atlantic. Yeah. Right on. As you think about all these studies that you've done with quail, quail habitat, the types of shrub that they're using, how temperature and climate impacts them. How is that informed the way that you make decisions as a quail hunter? Um, Because I got to believe that you're one of the smartest quail hunters because you got this pocket full of knowledge that you've learned about this bird. Um, Give us a couple hacks, a couple of tips for the rest of us to uh to put in our our game vest this fall well it definitely does influence the way i hunt but if i were being completely honest with you i would tell you that i mostly just trust my bird dog (laughs) (laughs) there's a famous quote by aldo leopold the you know considered the father of wildlife management that says my dog thinks that i have a lot to learn about partridge and when he says partridge, he's talking about rough grouse. Mm-hmm. 
you know, Aldo Leopold was way ahead of his time, knew more than most of us would ever hope to know about wildlife management, and he still recognized how little he knew when it came to what his dog, how his dog perceived the world. So I, I, I believe in my dog, and I, and I, mostly, <laughs> I mostly follow my dog. But um, there's no doubt that you can take what we know about quail and be a better hunter. Um, first of all, you need to get a good sight picture of what quail habitat looks like. We call quail, we call bobwhite grassland bird. That's really misleading. Hmm. Yeah, grasses are part of their habitat, but they are really a shrub obligate, meaning they have to have shrubs. And I don't care if it's mesquite in Texas or sand sagebrush in Woodward or running oak in North Florida. Everywhere you find quail in any abundance, there is going to be a, a shrubby, low-growing, woody component. You don't go to the Flint Hills of Kansas where it's a tall grass prairie from horizon to horizon and expect to see many quail. That's mm -hmm. prairie chicken country. That They are a grassland bird, prairie chickens. Quail are a shrub bird. There, mm -hmm. there usually is a lot of grass mixed in that they use for food and cover and nesting. but you can go to lots of parts of the world where it's pure grass and find zero quail. So that's the first thing is get it in your head, shrubs and the importance of shrubs. And then think about, you know, well, what do quail eat? Um, a lot of what people spray to clean up their pasture is quail food. And I can't tell you how many times I've been on a property where somebody says, I really want to manage for quail. I don't know why they've disappeared. And I start looking around and say, you know, I don't see any ragweed. I don't see any broomweed. I don't see any croton. And they say, well, I spray all that out. I, you know, I've sprayed my pasture. They've not made the connection that that's groceries for a quail. Hmm. They're not eating Bermuda grass. You know, the, they're eating seeds and, and grasshoppers. And so that's another thing to think about what constitutes quail food and is the landscape I'm in full of it or not? Does it have those seed producing plants, those insects? Does it have that woody plant component? And then think about how quail sees the world. You know, they're six to eight inches tall. So can you move your feet? I mean, I think a quail... Um, wants to be able to flee danger. But if you're walking through Bermuda that is so thick and thatched that you're tripping over it, a quail hadn't got a chance. Hmm. If my, this is, this is a good um, non-scientific way to decide if it's too thick for quail. If your bird dog is having to struggle to crawl through the grass, that's not quail habitat. Hmm. We're not trying to produce hay here. It's not a hay field. All right. We won't cover at knee to thigh or hip high, but at ground level, it needs to be really open. You mm. need to be able to move because that quail needs to be able to move through there, not only to flee danger, but also to forage efficiently. I think if you can just learn those three things, you'll be a lot better quail hunter because you'll be able to go into a site and say, this isn't it. There might be a covey in there, but I'm not going to find many. And I think the disheartening thing for a lot of the listeners might be that when they look around at their part of the world, they don't see that anywhere. Mm. They don't see any place that looks like that, but it could be. And that's where I think you need to pick up the phone and start calling your wildlife agency and say, hey, you manage a half million acres. 
how much of it is suitable for quail. Hmm. What's your dream research project? What's the big question that you haven't answered yet that uh, that's on the horizon for, for Dwayne Elmore? Hmm. For quail, well, uh, so Fred Guthrie was here uh, at Oklahoma State when I started, and uh, you know Fred has published um, probably more manuscripts on Bob White than than anyone else um, alive, and knows a tremendous a lot about quail. And I remember when he was retiring, I sat down with him. And talked to him one day, and and I said, you know, Fred, you've 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 studied every about every aspect you can think of for Bob White. What um, what's one thing you really wish that you had done? You know, what's one big glaring hole? And he said, if you can ever figure out how to make quail initiate more nests, hmm. he's like, you know, we we worry about nest success and brood success. He's like, but really if we could figure out how to get them just to nest more times. And I thought about that a lot. And I've, I've, as time has went on, I've seen that how important that really is, that the, the pure number of nest initiations um, is, is really a big driver of quail production. Hmm. Um, most nests fail, you know, lots of them do, and most chicks die. Uh, very few of them make it to adulthood. And so at some level, it becomes a sure number of actual nest attempts. And we know that's strongly driven by weather, in our part of the world especially. And so trying to better understand, is there anything we can do to mitigate that? Mm. We can't make it rain more. You know, we can't make it not be 110 on a day-to-day basis. But what are things that we can do to mitigate? And we're just scratching the surface of that trying to understand how the quail sees the world based on temperature. Um, so that's that's one of the reasons that I'm so interested in temperature is because mm. that directly feeds back into nest initiations and, and, and habitat selection. So, so, so I, I know it feels like we're winding down, but you mentioned uh, scaled quail, and I've got to ask some more questions about scaled quail. Because <laughs> you, you mentioned that, um, that ha- they haven't been – researched anywhere near as much as bobwhites my assumption is because of kind of the long history of bobwhites being the king of the south and scaled not fitting into that niche is why bobwhites have been studied more is that accurate or why why haven't i guess a long-winded question boiled down into a short one why haven't scaled quail been studied very much yeah, I th- you know, I think part of it is <clears throat> Bob White have a larger distribution. You know, they they historically occurred over most of the eastern United States, and it's also the part of the world that's been settled longer. Mm. You know, it's the first place that colonists showed up, um, and they're pretty quickly, uh, you know, they're started developing a quail culture as firearms and smokeless powder became more developed, and and it was actually a f- and people had affluence that they could actually leisurely hunt. Cause I mean, if you're trying to kill something for food, you know, a few ounces of bird is not the most efficient use of your time. So sure. really if people had more leisure time to recreate, not just substance hunting. You started developing this quail country in a part of the world that was settled 
Whereas you think about New Mexico, at least from the U- a U.S. perspective, I mean, mm-hmm. scaled coal occur, occur in Central America too, but just for the U.S., uh, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, parts of Oklahoma, you know, that part of the world was settled. Most of it was settled later. And, um, and also, you know, there's um, the, the birds behave differently. You know, scaled quail tend to run. And part of that's in the open landscape they inhabit. And, and they can be quite difficult for a dog to handle. And a lot of people just choose not. I mean, mm-hmm. I know a lot of quail hunters that don't like to hunt them because they give their dogs fits. Um, you know, they run and flush out of range. Um, I see that just as a challenge. That's what yeah. I like about it. Yeah. Uh, but I, so I think there's several reasons that why scaled quail haven't received the attention that Bob White have. The other thing is, from a research standpoint, is scaled quail, even though they have declined compared to Bob White, their distribution in numbers are much more stable than a Bob White are, hmm. which makes total sense when you think about how how different does New Mexico look now than it did in the 1700s? It's different, but it is not as different as Tennessee is now compared to the 1700s. Tennessee, where I grew up, has place names like Chicken Knob in reference to prairie chickens, mm. uh, Elk Elk Valley, uh, you know, uh, Buffalo River. It was prairie. Yeah. I mean, there were prairie, you know, open landscapes. Um, so, it looks nothing like that now. So a lot of the Eastern U.S. has dramatically changed and the bobwhite have crashed subsequently, whereas scaled quail country is a little more stable. Are scaled quail as prolific from a reproductive standpoint and nesting uh, initiation? And um, uh, do they attempt as much as bobwhites? No, Hmm. they don't. Um, so if you compared scaled quail to something like, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know a, a prairie chicken, like a greater prairie chicken or sage grouse, sage grouse would be a good example. Sage grouse uh, have very low nest, re-nest rates, small clutch sizes. Um, you know, they a lot of them won't even nest in a given year, perhaps. Bob White are on the other extreme where they're doing everything they can to produce. And the, and one of the reasons is Bob White on average don't even live a year. Hmm. You know, they're very short lived. Uh, sage grouse might live five years or more. So they've got more chances to produce. Scaled quail are more on the end of Bob White, but not as extreme as Bob White. So uh, they will renest. They typically don't renest with as much vigor as Bob White do. They, um, they're slightly longer lived. They tend to form pair bonds a little stronger. So often the male will stick around the nest. Um, the males don't incubate as often as they do in Bob Whites. The mm. hens don't hand chicks off as often as they do in Bob Whites. So they, they, they do boom and bust, but not as dramatically as Bob White do. Mm. They, are t- they tend to be a little more stable from year to year. It's fa- um, it's- What's the big question you want to answer about scaled quail? That that same that same question I asked you a few yeah. minutes ago about bobwhites. What's the big question we need to figure out for scalies? I'm really interested in how 
they relate to water, surface water. So most of the part, most of the world where scaled quail inhabit had little, in some cases, no surface water historically. But mm. there were scaled quail. We know that. So we know they they can survive without surface water. They can, and in a lab setting, you can show and Bob White as well. They can get all of their moisture requirements from the food they eat. Okay, they don't need surface water to survive. Just ingesting grasshoppers and seeds, they metabolize water. But we see pretty strong associations, especially scaled quail, to water developments. We've seen that on a couple of different studies now where they tend to be more concentrated around water. Hmm. But it's a little unclear as if that actually influences survival. So we spend millions of dollars every year in the U.S. building and maintaining water structures for wildlife. And for most species, the question has never really been asked, does it work? Hmm. It's not enough just to know that it concentrates game. Does it increase game? And that's what I want to know because I don't like to see people waste money. And if we're spending all these dollars on water developments, it could be spent on something else I think that's, if I was a manager, I would want to know that. And so we're trying to get a better idea of if and when water ever really matters, or does it just make it easier for us to find them and hunt? Uh, you know, I mean, and, and that might be a, a good enough reason to do it. But if I was a manager, I would want to know <clears throat> if I, um, if I'm actually benefiting the species of interest. So that's what Here, we're Here's out. a question. Yes, sir. Here's a question I'd like to ask as, as a quail hunter. Uh, is there any ecological benefit to the sandbird? It slows your bird dog down. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I've always wondered that yeah. uh, whether whether anything utilizes the sandbird as a as a food source or or anything because uh, they do seem to be the bane of of uh, hunters' <laughs> existence, especially in this part of the world. And I was just curious. Yeah, I, I don't know of anything that eats them. I, um, <laughs> Yeah, and there, I'll, I'll tell you one thing that if, if you want to grow sand burrs, I've found out the hard way how to do that. We were doing a disking study a couple years ago. We were trying to see what's the optimum time of the year to disk for, for bobwhite. And uh, we've learned that if you disk during the early summer, you get a great crop of sand burrs and, and not much else, <laughs> as it turned out. <laughs> So, but no, I, I don't know. I'm sure there's something, probably some insect that really needs sand burr, but nothing that I work on. What about um, the goat head? And I don't know what the biological name is, but it's it's like the yeah. sand burr on steroids. Yeah, those are those are wicked wicked plants. Yeah, same thing. I don't I don't know of anything that uses it, but. If you ever step on one barefoot, you won't forget it. Do does everybody in Oklahoma when they go quail hunting are their dogs booted because of all the sandbirds and the goat heads, or is it you, your dogs sort of get accustomed to it and you don't need it, and it's the non-residents that have to boot their dogs? Well, I hunt with short hairs, which uh, you can hobble them and they'll still go. So it takes a lot to slow them down. Um, so some of it's dog specific, breed specific, individual dog are more sensitive than others. Uh, I do use boots sometimes. I don't know how often Chad uses them, but 
it really depends on the year. Some years are worse for sandburrs and some properties are worse. I mean, mm-hmm. there are places that I just know, okay, I'm going to have to boot here, but it, if I can get by with it, I, I will. And the reason I don't like to boot is I'm lazy and it, it just takes, <laughs> it takes 30 minutes to boot up and the whole time the dog's pulling and fighting and wanting to go hunt, you know, it's just kind of. And then I usually lose a boot. So you lose a boot. I usually throw yeah. one. All right. Well, you've been very gracious with your time. I'll ask um, one final question and let Chad chime in after this. So we've talked a fair amount about Oklahoma um, being that you're located in Oklahoma. We've talked about the entire United States, but since you're you're based in Oklahoma, give us a kind of state of the state for quail for 2020 hunting season in the state of Oklahoma. I'm pretty optimistic. So last year, I would rate um, as average to slightly below average based on the places I hunted. Um, you know, it was a year that was definitely worth hunting, but it wasn't a boom year. Um, and from all indications so far this year, it's going to be better. It's not going to be like 2015. Hmm. I, I can promise you that. It's not going to be 20 something coveys a day, but I think it will be better than last year. Um, especially in the Northwest, uh, in the Panhandle. Southwest is pretty poor, uh, really bad weather conditions in the Southwest. But Southeast, uh, where there's habitat, should be pretty good. The Northwest should be pretty good. My gut, from what I've seen so far, is I'm telling people uh, to expect foot hunters. I'm not talking about horseback, but foot hunters to expect six to ten coveys a day. Okay. So not... Not our best year, but good enough. Chad, can you live with that? I can live with that. <laughs> I, uh, I actually, you stole my question. That's what I was going to ask him: is uh, what what his uh, his gut feeling for for the for the 2020, 2021 season was going to be? Yeah. So you know, part of that's based on what we've seen on our research. Part of it's based on what we've what I've seen watching the weather. Mm-hmm. You know. Based on past history, what would that likely yield? And then also we have an app uh, that's uh, free to the public where they can tell us what broods they're seeing throughout the summer. And um, a lot more this year than last year. Hmm. A lot more. And also, I, I will say, if you do plan on coming to Northwest Oklahoma, we do have a bumper crop of sandburrs this year. <laughs> I can attest to that uh, from personal experience this far. So far, I better better make some spare boots then. <laughs> Uh, anything different when it comes to scaled quail and the projection for this year? Uh, pretty poor, uh, most. So, you know, pl- the edge of their distribution, like where Chad's at, um, that probably did okay. But as you get really into the core of their distribution, so Southwest Kansas, where we're doing the research project, very low numbers. I've yeah. had a couple of bad hatches in a row. New Mexico, where we just finished doing a project, you know, bad drought in New Mexico. Uh, they really, it's been three or four years since they really had a great hatch. So the numbers are pretty low. This uh, would not be the year I would plan a trip probably for scaled quail. Okay. And if folks want to learn more about your research and, and what's happening uh, at Oklahoma State, where would you direct people? We've got a website. It's a uh, wildlife chairs that's just no spaces wildlife chairs uh, dot okstate.edu 
So if they will go to that website, it has some summaries and most of our publications are on there that they can download and read. Awesome. This has been fascinating. Thank you for uh, dedicating so much time to this conversation. Thank you all for taking the time. I really enjoy talking with you. Well, in your return visit to the podcast, we're going to have Leslie on with you and we're going to find out what uh, life as a <laughs> biologist, a quail biologist couple is really like. Absolutely. I, and, I, and I'm not joking. We got to get that on the calendar. That would be fascinating. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Chad, thanks for taking time. Any any final parting thoughts for us today? No, I, this is fascinating. Uh, I, uh, I first heard uh, Dwayne speak, I think it was at the Oklahoma State meeting in uh, 2019 and uh, just, just had a blast listening to him. So for me, this is a real treat. Yeah. Dwayne, thank you for everything you've done uh, for Quail and in partnership with our organization. It's always been a pleasure to talk to. Well, thank you all so much. I hope to see you soon. All right. Very good. Uh, and listeners, uh, we'll invite you to uh, learn more at quailforever.org. We'll invite you to be a member. Uh, we got an awesome offer for a Quail Forever uh, Blaze Orange hoodie right there on the homepage right now. So, Sign up, become a member, get a year's subscription to the publication that Chad Love puts together each and every issue. And if you sign up through that link specifically right now, while we have uh, quantities available, you'll get that hoodie. Uh, I'm Bob St. Pierre saying thanks for listening and always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks, folks. Have a great start to your hunting season.